The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Courtyard of an elementary school is probably the last place on earth you'd ever expect someone to attempt hiring a hitman. Not for a mother in Adelaide, Australia. In 2001, the mom posed a startling question to another mom as they stood waiting for their kids to be let out of school. Whether she knew anyone that could be hired to kill her lover's wife, and it just so happened she did. Join me now as we take a look into the bizarre murder-for-hire case of Carolyn Matthews. You'll hear the twisted story of a husband willing to risk everything for a seductress who'd stop at nothing to get her own way. Carolyn Tidswell was born in Adelaide, Australia in 1963 to parents Doug and Yvonne. One of five siblings, Carolyn was the only girl among four brothers and was fortunate to be brought up in the suburb of Netley, the perfect place to raise a family in the 60s, a neighborhood teeming with young families, streets filled with children playing cricket, a beach town where neighbors organized picnics by the ocean just a few minutes away. In many ways, the Australian beach life and culture of the 60s mirrored the nostalgic images of California from the same time period. A parallel, southern hemispheric paradise of sand, sun, good times, and family fun. It was the kind of life that had attracted 11-year-old Carolyn to join Nippers, a junior version of one of the most enduring features of Australian beach life, a local surf life-saving club. A volunteer force of lifeguards dedicated to patrolling the country's more than 32,000 miles of coastline. For many who get involved, Surf lifesaving wasn't just a hobby, it was a passion, culture, and form of identity. And for Carolyn Tidswell, it became just that. So much so, it was an influencing factor in her love life. At age 14, in 1977, Carolyn met 17-year-old Kevin Matthews at a party. Not only was he fun, fit, and handsome, most importantly to Carolyn, he was also a dedicated member of his local surf lifesaving club. And before long, the initial sparks of attraction blossomed into teenage romance. Although Kevin and Carolyn shared a love for their lifesaving clubs, Kevin hadn't experienced the same nostalgic upbringing as Carolyn. Instead, he was raised among foster siblings in a home where money was always extremely tight. But his hard scrabble youth had only made him all the more determined to better himself financially. When he first met Carolyn, Kevin had just started working at a national chain of tire repair stores called Bow Repairs. Eventually, his hard work paid off, and he worked his way up the ladder all the way to regional manager. In 1984, 
Kevin married Carolyn when she was 21 and he was 24. Six months later, they welcomed their first son, Kenny. Three years later came Shane and in 1989, Daniel. Although Carolyn's world revolved around raising her kids, that didn't stop her and Kevin from remaining dedicated to their Semaphore Beach Surf Lifesaving Club, with Kevin even serving as the club president for four years. Because of Kevin's financial success at Bow Repairs, the family was able to afford a home in the respectful suburb of West Lakes. There they became determined to provide their kids with the same idealistic beach life upbringing Carolyn had enjoyed and Kevin had always wanted. Despite the success Kevin had had bettering himself financially, one thing he never acquired was a sense of refinement. He was the kind of guy who liked dirty jokes, inappropriate conversations, and vulgarity, known to down two entire bottles of scotch in a night. Carolyn, on the other hand, was the complete opposite, never described as anything other than classy and polite. But although Carolyn and Kevin were like chalk and cheese, Together they built a beautiful family, and by the year 2000, they'd been married 16 years, were raising three rambunctious teenage boys, and were both well-respected pillars in their surf life community, an idyllic family life that was all about to change. One day in March 2000, Kevin was approached by one of his employees a branch manager named Darren Burgess who had some bad news. He'd just been busted for drinking and driving. Although the infraction was grounds for immediate termination, Kevin managed to convince higher-ups to let Darren keep his job. For Darren, not being fired was the first good thing to happen to him in a long while, because unlike Kevin, Darren's home life was in shambles. Born in 1970, Darren Burgess grew up in Adelaide and aspired to become a police officer. But it would be a childhood dream that would never come to fruition due to his shy demeanor. After applying to join the force as a young man, he failed the interview portion because he came across as too timid. So instead of becoming a cop, he began working in the tire industry just like his father. At 18, Darren met and fell in love with 15-year-old Michelle Goldup, a relationship marked by red flags almost from the start. Michelle openly flirted with other guys, which infuriated Darren. But because he was a bit of a pushover, he never really did anything about it. It was the same quality that had prevented him from becoming a cop, and Michelle was taking full advantage of it. Just days after purchasing a plot of land with Michelle, Darren caught her cheating on him. However, this time he wasn't about to let her infidelity slide, and he broke up with her. But the courage of his convictions didn't last long. Michelle knew how to manipulate Darren back and had her mother call him telling her her daughter's new boyfriend was abusing her. And it worked. But rather than take advantage of the opportunity to turn over a new leaf, Michelle turned around and cheated on him again. But even if Darren wanted to leave Michelle this time, he couldn't bring himself to do it because Michelle announced she was pregnant and he'd resolved himself to sticking by her side through thick and thin. After the birth of their first child in 1992, Darren proposed. He believed it was the perfect time to set their relationship on the right course 
and for a year it was. Until just two weeks before their marriage when Darren found evidence Michelle had been cheating on him again, this time with one of his bow repairs co-workers. The evidence was a letter Michelle had written to an Australian TV host asking for advice about her affair. But instead of calling off the wedding, Darren went through with it. And as you can probably guess, things only continued to go downhill from there. Over the next three years, Michelle carried on an affair with one of Darren's best friends. And although Darren always suspected the affair, he could never prove it. Instead, he coped with the situation by abusing alcohol. His major wake-up call finally came in the form of flashing red and blue lights. A police cruiser had pulled him over for driving under the influence. He now had to tell his boss, Kevin Matthews, about the charges. Michelle Burgess had always hated Darren's boss. She'd met Kevin a few times over the years at various bow repairs company parties, and his infamously crude humor had always disgusted her. But that all changed after Kevin helped save Darren's job, and Michelle began texting with him. Soon Darren began recognizing the all-too-familiar telltale signs Michelle was once again cheating on him like making up excuses to spend the night somewhere else, coming home with hickeys, and spending lengthy amounts of time locked up in the bathroom while sending texts to her new lover. Michelle even pretended to get a job to cover up the affair, telling Darren she'd taken a fundraising position at her son's school. But it was all a lie. The job didn't exist. It was simply her way of having an excuse to meet up with Kevin at hotels, who'd often use the company credit card to finance their encounters. Although the pair thought they were being sneaky, Kevin and Michelle's lurid affair soon became one of Adelaide's worst-kept secrets. In the lead-up to Christmas 2000, there were a number of bow repairs holiday parties where Michelle and Kevin made it clear something was going on between them. They were cuddly, over-friendly, and by the end of the evening, when drinking was in full swing, their affections for each other were undeniable. And by Christmas, Michelle had given Kevin an ultimatum. Leave his wife Carolyn, or the affair was over. While Michelle was going on about her affair with Kevin, Darren seemed to be willfully ignorant of her infidelity, either ignoring it or choosing not to believe it. Kevin's wife Carolyn, on the other hand, seemed to have been genuinely oblivious to the affair, at least for a while, and for a good reason. Not only was Carolyn busy raising three teenage boys, she worked a full-time job running a soft furnishings company with a business partner, but it wasn't just the daily grind that was distracting Carolyn's attention away from her adulterous husband. Her father had been battling terminal cancer, and in the summer of 2000, was released from the hospital to receive palliative care at home. Until his passing on Christmas Eve of that year, Carolyn, who'd always been close with her dad, spent as much time with him as she could. A few days after her father passed away, while Carolyn organized her father's wake, Kevin sat on the couch, drank scotch, watched TV, and ignored all the guests. That same day, 
Darren received an anonymous phone call informing him Michelle was having an affair with Kevin. Whether he tried to ignore it before, he couldn't any longer. Immediately, Darren rang up Kevin to confront him, but Kevin flatly denied the allegations. But Darren soon would have his proof. When weeks later he discovered Michelle's $1,200 cell phone bill, as well as an outstanding balance of $1,600 from the previous month, charges she racked up between calls and texts sent to Kevin. It was the straw that broke the camel's back, and Darren decided it was time to call Kevin again. But this time, he called to thank him for taking Michelle, who he referred to in a derogatory way, off his hands. And with that, Darren finally walked away from an incredibly toxic relationship. But that didn't stop Michelle from trying to reel him back in again about a month later, this time telling him she'd been diagnosed with terminal cervical cancer. But it was yet another lie, and Darren knew better than to believe her. After Darren left Michelle nearly every other day for six months, Kevin and Michelle met up for extra-long lunches, and often, a whole lot more. Soon their private rendezvous at hotels turned into public forms of affection, something witnessed by a former bow repairs employee at a public park. By June 2001, Carolyn began realizing their family finances seemed to be dwindling. That's when she discovered Kevin had been using the equity on their house to pay off clandestine credit card bills. Nearly $25,000 worth he racked up at bars and hotels, sneaking off with Michelle. But Kevin's excessive spending wasn't limited to simply draining his family's mortgage account. Upper management at Bow Repairs also noticed Kevin had been racking up serious charges on his company credit card as well. For 23 years, Kevin had been an all-star employee, universally respected within the organization, garnering awards for his work in sales. But during a six-month period, from December 2000 to June 2001, he decided to throw it all away. His behavior, the affair, and misuse of the company credit card led to a massive demotion, from regional manager back to branch manager. Kevin's demotion, combined with Carolyn's suspicions of the affair, naturally caused severe tensions within the Matthews household. Yet Kevin remained completely unwilling to leave Carolyn, Perhaps it was the house, the kids, the shame, or even some sense of commitment. We'll never know. We'll also never know why Carolyn chose to stick it out with Kevin. Perhaps for the same reasons. Michelle, for her part, had completely reneged on her promise to stop sleeping with Kevin unless he left his wife. But it was still something she continued begging Kevin to do. Something she was starting to believe would never happen. Unless... She made it happen. On the street outside her eight-year-old son's elementary school, Michelle often chatted with other mothers waiting to pick up their children. But there was one mom named Kathy who she often gossiped with and told all the sore details of her affair to. Over the months while they chatted, Kathy noticed Michelle becoming increasingly vitriolic whenever she mentioned Carolyn. Until one day in 2001, when Michelle asked her gossip buddy a stunning question. If she knew anyone 
who'd be willing to kill Carolyn. Kathy's answer was just as surprising. She knew just the person, her brother, who'd just gotten out of prison. 36-year-old David Key was a career criminal, recently released from prison for a parole violation. Since getting kicked out of school at 15, David had lived a rough, drug-addicted, and crime-ridden existence. Aside from being uneducated, he had a low IQ and was illiterate. And in the 21 years since leaving school, David estimates he'd only ever held the real job for less than two of them. Fresh out of prison in 2001, David needed money to fuel an amphetamine addiction that was costing him close to $1,800 a week. And he was desperate for work, any kind of work. His sister Kathy suspected he might just be willing to solve Michelle's problem for her. After Kathy introduced Michelle and David, things began moving rather quickly. But Michelle was no longer satisfied with just getting rid of Carolyn. She wanted to get rid of her ex-husband Darren as well. It would solve so many problems. The headache of joint custody, not to mention the life insurance payout. David happily agreed to become Michelle's contract killer for both Carolyn and Darren, and Michelle produced two contracts. She'd taped a photo of Carolyn and Darren, each on separate sheets of paper, with personal details written below. Below Carolyn's photo were details written in Kevin's handwriting. Below Darren's were details written in Michelle's handwriting. Michelle and Kevin had agreed to pay David $50,000 total, twenty-five dollars for each murder. They also paid him an advance of $1,500 from Kevin's bank account, money he was supposed to use to buy a gun or whatever supplies he might need. After agreeing to the contracts, David stuffed the pieces of paper in his wallet. But David wasn't what you'd call a sophisticated hitman. In the days that followed, David proceeded to tell seemingly everyone about his new job, even pulling out the papers and showing the contracts to several witnesses. As for the $1,500, David quickly spent the money on alcohol, marijuana, and amphetamines, leaving nothing left to buy a gun. Perhaps for the extra insurance, shortly after hiring him, Michelle began an intensely sexual relationship with David, and he seemed completely unaware of her motives, that Michelle was simply manipulating and using him. In his eyes, he legitimately believed they were becoming a couple, especially once they moved in together. As weeks passed, Michelle realized she needed to act quickly or her murderous plans might begin to fall apart. David was proving to be an incompetent liability who couldn't keep his mouth shut and Kevin seemed to be getting cold feet about the entire operation. So on July 12th, Michelle took matters into her own hands and set the wheels in motion. Starting at 6 a.m., she began sending messages to Kevin, trying to convince him to carry out their plan. At the same time, she was busy making sure David was getting himself drugged up and inebriated. At 5 p.m., just as Kevin's bow repair store was closing, Michelle and David showed up, with Michelle insisting Carolyn's murder needed to happen that night. At first, David balked at the idea, because after weeks of brainstorming, he still hadn't come up with a way to carry out the hit without being caught. He didn't even have a weapon. 
but Michelle managed to talk him into it. What seems obvious now, but perhaps was beyond David's intellectual capabilities at the time, was that Michelle most likely didn't care if he got caught. She was just using him, setting him up to be the fall guy. Immediately after their meeting at Bow Repairs, Kevin called Carolyn at home around 5.30 p.m. Their horrible plan had now been set in motion. In his call home to Carolyn, Kevin told her he planned on taking the boys to the video store after getting home from work. It was his way of getting the kids out of the house and leaving her alone for what would happen next. At the same time Kevin was picking up the kids and pulling out of the driveway, Michelle and David were arriving at the house, and Carolyn was on her way to take out the trash. But as Carolyn opened the door to head outside, she spotted David and Michelle approaching. Michelle she recognized, not the angry man holding a piece of paper in his hand. The piece of paper was the murder contract with Carolyn's photo on it. And as David handed it to her and asked her if it was her, Michelle suddenly struck Carolyn in the face, knocking her back into the house. Once inside, Michelle and David argued over who was going to kill Carolyn as she begged and pleaded for her life, hopelessly asking what she'd done to deserve this. Michelle told David if he loved her, he needed to prove it, while handing him a knife she'd fished out from one of the kitchen drawers. After cornering Carolyn, David began to stab her over and over again until she was no longer fighting back. David then grabbed the murder weapon, along with two other knives he'd seen Michelle touch while rummaging through the drawers and wiped them down for fingerprints. As they exited the home, David tossed the knives in the yard just outside the front door as Michelle walked back to the car. When he got inside, Michelle started laughing. As the boys browsed for movies, Kevin sat nervously in his truck waiting for a call. And then it came. A three-second call from a payphone. It was Michelle. The deed was done, and it was time to go home. When Kevin arrived back at the family home with the boys, he knew full well what laid in store. And after unlocking the front door, he made sure his three children walked in first. 16-year-old Kenny was the first to discover his mom's lifeless body, laying in a pool of blood in the kitchen. 13-year-old Shane was the one to call emergency responders, and as they waited for an ambulance to arrive, Kevin and Kenny attempted to perform CPR. It's utterly tragic and traumatic moments like this that don't often get the attention they deserve. The lasting impact violent crimes and homicide have on the surviving victims is incomprehensible. Not only had Kevin planned to have the mother of his boys brutally murdered, he intentionally made sure they'd be the ones to discover her. Clinical psychologist Dr. Christina Frizzani explains the devastating impact the brutal murder of a loved one can have for years to come. A string of unfolding interactions between Kevin and Michelle led Kevin to take increasingly drastic steps to keep Michelle in his life, including allowing his own children to discover Carolyn's body. 
Losing a parent has a profound enough impact on a child. It changes their emotional development and the course of their relationships for years to come. It could add a primary element to the narrative of their childhood, overpowering other childhood experiences and making that child vulnerable to misguided attachments, getting close to the wrong people or for the wrong reasons. Children who deal with the loss of a parent often struggle with depression later on in life, as well as behavioral issues. It's really difficult for a child to understand death, let alone comprehend a crime scene with their own family member in it. The grieving process of a child who would have found their own mother would be double the difficulty and it would just add so much more to what they had to overcome as they get older. Children and adolescents don't have the cognitive capacity to make sense of the concept of death, let alone comprehend finding the body themselves. The crime itself was initially puzzling to detectives, considering it was such a brutal murder. There didn't seem to be many clues or clear motive. The three knives David had dropped in the yard seemed random to detectives. One absurdly sensational hypothesis was that they'd been laid out in a ritualistic fashion. Perhaps it was a signature of a psychopathic serial killer. Another theory that at least made a little more sense was that it had been a robbery gone wrong. What else could explain a killer? who'd clearly arrived without a weapon of their own. Theories aside, the only piece of actual physical evidence found on the scene was a boot print left on the kitchen floor in Carolyn's blood. Detectives knew if they could find the boot, they'd find the killer. During Kevin's initial interview with police, he denied having an affair with anyone at all. In fact, he swore he hadn't, and for the moment, Kevin wasn't a suspect. Until the news of Carolyn's murder reached the public, that is. Soon police began receiving phone calls about the not-so-secret affair, as well as calls about David. Which wasn't too surprising, considering how many people he blabbed to about the murder contracts prior. Working off the tips, surveillance teams were dispatched to monitor both Michelle and David. Although Kevin's role in his wife's murder, if any, was still unclear to police. There was no question. He was now most certainly a suspect. As police continued to monitor Michelle and David, Kevin played the role of grieving husband at Carolyn's funeral. At only 37 years old, the impact Carolyn had left on her surf life-saving community was on full display. With so many mourners attending the service, the funeral home was overflowing. The same night as Carolyn's funeral, after the boys had gone to sleep, Kevin slipped out of the house to see Michelle, and although there's no proof of what they did together that night, it's not too difficult to read between the lines. And as predictable as Michelle and Kevin's ongoing affair was, was David's inevitable stupidity. Just two weeks after murdering Carolyn, David decided to speed around town as fast as his car could go, drawing attention from police. But when they attempted to pull him over, David tried to outrun them. Unfortunately for David, he drove straight into busy Adelaide traffic and had no way of fleeing, leaving him no chance but to give himself up. 
Not only had David been the prime suspect, there had also been a warrant out for his arrest for failing to check in with his parole officer. Immediately, David was taken into custody, and police couldn't believe what they discovered when he was searched. He just so happened to be wearing the exact same boots he'd worn when he attacked Carolyn. The tread pattern was unmistakable. DNA found on the boots would later be confirmed to be Carolyn's. But even more damning, at least for Michelle, was what they found in David's wallet. The murder contract for Darren Burgess, written in Michelle's handwriting. Not long after David's arrest, police issued a search warrant for Michelle's house, where they found a diary she'd written in. Handwriting samples were compared to the murder contract, were an exact match. By the time they arrested Michelle on August 3rd, Carolyn Matthews' murder and a blizzard of rumors surrounding the case had become a media sensation. Television crews turned up en masse for what should have been an uneventful and routine first court appearance for Michelle. But when the cameras were rolling, it turned out to be anything but that. That day, Kevin decided to show up at court in full support of Michelle, the woman now accused of murdering his wife. It was unbelievable. Kevin wore a cricket hat to the courtroom, which may seem unremarkable if it weren't for the fact that he'd written on the inside the word forever in large black letters. It was a message planned to secretly flash to Michelle during the proceedings as a show of support. His eternal love, a desperate plea for her to keep quiet about his involvement. But what was supposed to be a secret message, meant only for Michelle, was soon discovered by TV cameras. But it wasn't a clever camera trick that busted Kevin. He'd chosen the wrong marker. The black ink he'd used to write forever in his cap was clearly visible through the thin white polycotton blend fabric of the hat and TV crews caught it on camera as Kevin exited the courtroom. Footage that was later broadcast into every Australian home with the television. On September 7th, Kevin Matthews was finally arrested and charged as a co-conspirator in Carolyn's murder for hire. Although he continued denying his role in his wife's murder, as well as an affair with Michelle, the circumstantial evidence against him, Michelle, and David was becoming overwhelming. Successfully prosecuting all parties involved in a contract killing is a notoriously difficult task for prosecutors, and they knew they had an uphill battle ahead of them. But after nearly two years of building their case, they finally caught a giant break. David Key not only wanted to confess and plead guilty, he agreed to testify against Kevin and Michelle. Word somehow managed to drift through the prison rumor mill back to David that Michelle hadn't been faithful to him during their brief time as a couple. A fact, it seems, David was the last person on earth to realize, something he wasn't too happy about. Detectives hoped David would be able to produce a copy of Carolyn's murder contract, a piece of evidence that could be their smoking gun but apparently, he'd eaten it. The day after Carolyn's murder, he told detectives he'd torn it up, put it in a sandwich, and swallowed it. Thankfully, even without the contract, 
David's confession and testimony were enough to put Kevin and Michelle away, and in 2002, a jury found them guilty. Each were handed a life sentence with a minimum non-parole period of 30 years, an extremely long sentence by Australian standards, even for murder. At their sentencing, the judge stated the crimes were premeditated, heartless, brutal, and was in the worst category of murder. To this day, both Michelle and Kevin continued to maintain their innocence. Because of his plea and testimony, David was only given a non-parole period of 20 years. Carolyn's autopsy revealed just how ferocious the attack had been on her that night and how fiercely she fought back. In total, she suffered at least 41 stab wounds, eight of which were severe, including one to each lung and one to her heart. This is how her three boys found her. Michelle Burge's prison sentence isn't the end of her strange story. Within the first year of serving her time, Michelle got involved with no less than three inappropriate relationships with male prison guards. In fact, it became such a problem, a rule was implemented to prevent guards from ever being alone with Michelle. Even more baffling was when one of the guards resigned after being barred from interacting with her, telling his boss he was in love with her. He then left his wife of 30 years, his three children, and moved in with Michelle's mother. The magnetic and manipulative spell Michelle seems to be able to cast over men is perhaps the most fascinating aspect of this case. Referred to as a black widow, it appeared Michelle wielded a strange power over men, one that made them willing to not only destroy their own lives, but their families as well. Because Michelle refused to take part in psychological testing, no clear diagnoses are available. Despite not interviewing Michelle himself, Dr. White was familiar with the case and put together a possible psychological profile of Michelle, which I've reviewed and based my own impressions on. Dr. Jack White is a psychologist in Adelaide, Australia, who has specialized in forensic psychology since 1990. Psychological factors that go into a criminal profile are complex. Above average intelligence is linked to more efficient problem solving and use of resources in people who are more resilient, while someone with a lower intelligence, which Michelle was thought to have had, has difficulty making effective decisions and it can tend to be more impulsive, which can lead to mistakes. And then even worse off when those individuals with lower intelligence make mistakes, they become more easily frustrated and aggressive because of the consequences. Michelle had several issues in her younger years that may have contributed to increasingly risky behavior. Her father was reportedly very flirtatious, which Michelle copied as she grew up. She was truant in high school. She had poor grades. She drank alcohol and became pregnant at only the age 18. There are reports that she was sexually promiscuous as an adult, which can be actually a component of bipolar disorder, which Dr. White thought Michelle might have had. When a person is in a manic phase, they're often sexually promiscuous. They act out. That can be a sign that the person desires closeness 
but only has sort of a shallow ability to bond with another person. So they're seeking that closeness through sex without first building trust and connection. Dr. White thought that she may have struggled with bipolar disorder and possibly even been in a manic phase when she planned and helped carry out Carolyn's murder. Based on Michelle's background, behavior, her relationship patterns over the years, it's evident that she struggled with narcissistic, antisocial, and borderline traits. She apparently didn't follow the social and legal expectations of society. She dishonored her own marriage. She dishonored other people's marriages. She took advantage of others to satisfy her own ego cravings, to make herself feel good. Michelle apparently was also able to use her verbal and sexual behavior to get men to do her biddings. She showed little remorse and was willing to put others in danger just to protect herself. Although we can only look at patterns since we don't have information directly gathered by a clinician who saw or assessed Michelle, we can only look at possible mental health issues. But it also seems likely that she had borderline traits like idealizing her relationships when they're going well and devaluing them and ridiculing them when things were not going well. She was also suspicious, often to the point of paranoia and hostile, which are traits of borderline personality disorder. And then another personality disorder Michelle seems to have suffered from at least characteristics of was narcissism. She had the inflated self-esteem, a sense of grandiosity, and an inability to empathize with other people. It would make sense if Miss Burgess was suffering from a manic episode in addition to the narcissistic borderline and antisocial traits she displayed while planning and carrying out the murder of Carolyn Matthews. When a person is manic, they might experience intense energy, not sleep for days at a time, have grandiose ideas of what they can accomplish and act out impulsively and even sometimes experience delusions that would drive these actions. So if Michelle suffering from this combination of mental health issues, especially being in a manic episode at the time, it would give some light, some understanding to her behavior. In many ways, the strange saga of Michelle, Kevin, and David reads like a sophomore soap opera. The petulant drama, the love triangles, the sheer imbecility of it all. But all of this only makes Carolyn's murder seem all the more senseless, all the more tragic. The loving mother of three boys, who was a pillar of her community, was heartlessly murdered over selfishness and greed. During Kevin Matthews' sentencing, his oldest son Kenny read an impact statement in court that summed up his incredulity. You had a great life with the surf club, great friends, nice house, a family that loved you, and you threw it all away for one stupid woman, one stupid mistake that ruined the lives of everyone around you. Your family, friends, and especially the lives of your three sons. We will have to go through the rest of our lives thinking, why? How could this have happened to us? It's obvious you didn't think of anyone else but yourself. You didn't think about the lives this has affected around you. How three boys will grow up the rest of their lives without parent guidance to help us through our toughest times. You will never be forgiven for this. How could anyone forgive you? 
Follow the Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and all other podcast platforms. If you'd like to support this show and get some extra perks, like early release and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. Our website can be found at mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. To listen to The Minds of Madness and other Wondery shows ad-free, start your free trial of Wondery Plus at wonderyplus.com slash madness.